The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Last time I spoke, I had like 10 slides. This time I have no slides. So it's an all or nothing thing. I have the slides just for scripture and that's it. I decided last time I worked Brenna way too hard and this time I'm going to go easy. Um, thank you for coming here tonight. Uh, I know that many of you have come from different places, that you're getting off work, that you're probably tired. Uh, maybe you got up at 5 o'clock this morning, and this is now the end of your day where you're starting to wind down. I totally understand that. Um, and I just want to claim this space as a place where we have come together as a community to hear what God has to say and to join together and get to know each other, um, but also just to take that space within our week to listen to what God is doing uh, in the life of this community, but also in the larger life of UPC. So um, hopefully that will be what this next hour will be like for you. Um, and I'd like to start that time by just walking in prayer a little bit, praying and spending some time in prayer um, to get ready to walk into what we're going to be talking about tonight, um, which is um, part of worship. But before we do that, I'd just like to spend some time in prayer. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are here, um, that you chose to be here on our behalf before the dawn of time before the foundation of the world, Lord, that you chose us and that you said yes and you moved into creation even though you knew what might come out of it and that it might cost you everything. And even in that knowledge, Lord, that you moved forward in love and in freedom, And now, Lord, as we come through these doors tonight, we come in response to that yes that you have issued to us. We might not be able to put it all together. Our life may seem confusing sometimes. It may seem muddled. It may seem like it's hard to see your face. But, Lord, we come through these doors because we want to respond to the love that you have given us. And so, Lord, in this space, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and that you would come and work on our hearts and help us to see what you're doing in our life, what you're doing in the life of those around us, what you're doing in this community, and what you're doing in the world. Give us the eyes to see that, that we may come to know you anew and to be renewed by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I'm told by John that this is a series where we are examining uh, the worship life of the church. And I don't know if he's used that language in explaining it. Um, I know that he's talking about the fact that this is a core, a series where we're talking about our core, um, our identity, um, and this whole idea that God is restoring our identity 
through worship. That God uses the worship that we bring to restore our identity. Um, the idea that in the fall, and if I'm, if I'm talking about stuff that you guys have like spent hours and hours hashing over, I, I apologize. So just bear with me because I'll eventually talk about something that is new. Um, but in the fall, something happened that changed the course of human history. Right, that marred our identity, um, and, it, and it's not easily undone. And it's interesting that throughout the course of Scripture, that God never sends us back to the garden, that that is not the end place that we get to. Um, in a sense, once Adam and Eve um, are stricken from the garden, the garden is lost forever. It's lost But it's not forgotten. Because once we're stricken from that garden, it still seems to me that the image, that that memory of being in a place where we had intimacy with God is still in the collective human memory. There is a sense in which we know what is meant to be. And we know that the way that we are living is not that So this collective human memory of what is supposed to be, it triggers for us the question of who we are. It triggers that identity question. Who are we? And through worship, um, we discover that these memories get redeemed, that that collective human memory of, of where we know that we came from gets redeemed through God's actions, and that through that, we are then changed into something new. So it's not as if we're going back, but we're actually moving into something new. And that's why this whole idea of identity is really important. Because we're not going back to what we used to be, but we're going forward into something that hasn't quite happened yet. And what I mean is that we know that there's something off about who we are, but we don't quite know who we are instead. And I got that from that Jars of Clay song. I don't know if you guys know that one, but that's... One of those um, favorite ones for me. But I do love the idea of who we are instead. We don't quite know who we are instead. We need reminders. We need work. We need to engage in, in this question of who we are instead. Instead of being the estranged humanity from God, who are we? And that is one of the questions that our worship raises for us. So worship is one of the prominent ways that God restores this image and answers the question of who are we instead. And this isn't a new idea, and it's not even a Christian idea. But it's Judeo-Christian for sure. And as I was looking and as I was reflecting and thinking um, about some of the first stories that we see in the Bible, um, if you remember, when Noah comes out of the ark... As this man who is representing what God has done in making humanity new, or at least the first attempt that we have to cleanse the earth. Um, the first thing that Noah does is he has an offering, a burnt offering right there on the ground. They come out of the ark and they make an offering. And um, that is what I see as making this place of worship, creating space for worship 
in, um, in the context of who humanity is supposed to be. Making a place for worship as the new people of God, as God starts the world over again. And so that's the first place that we see it. And then we see it over and over again with burnt offerings in the Old Testament. You'll always see burnt offerings. Abraham offers up burnt offerings. Jacob offers up burnt offerings. Um, I'm not entirely sure the history behind the whole burnt offering thing, but what I want to explain it as here is this space in which we worship God. It's just sort of carving out that space for what that means. And then where it really gets formed is in the Exodus. So Moses, of course, brings the people through the Red Sea and they have this incredible, powerful experience of liberation and freedom. And then he brings them to the place of Mount Sinai. And what is it that they learn in Mount Sinai? They learn how to worship. That becomes the place where they experience redemption, but they don't experience redemption in and of itself. They experience it for the sake of then learning how to worship. And that's why from Exodus 20 on, you know, often we don't even read those chapters because they're just the Levitical laws of what it means to worship, of how a people orders their life when they know that God is in their midst. And that is what then identity formation started to look like for the early, um, the early followers of Yahweh, the early Jews. Um, and, of course, this whole idea of worship formation, it's been around for a long time. So I just showed you a few of those. But then there was also after Sinai, there's um, the tabernacle, and then it moves on to the temple and worship in the temple. And then we eventually move from the temple to the synagogue because when the Jews can't get to the temple anymore, they form communities around the word. Those communities are called synagogues. And that, of course, is the tradition that Jesus grows up in. So all of that to say that this whole idea of worship as identity, as identity formation is a biblical idea, but it doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. It goes back before then even. Um, okay, so the second thing that I wanted to talk about before I jump into where we're really going tonight, because where we're really going to be headed into is in the sacraments, but I'm just painting this background so that we have a little bit of background before we move into that second the, the idea of the sacraments. And the other thing that I want to talk about is that, the, that we've built the structure of worship. So worship is not just a Christian idea. It starts as a biblical idea, but it's a Judeo-Christian. And that, that, um, that worship is really a human idea. Nowhere in the scriptures is there an order of worship. Nowhere in the scriptures is there an order of worship. We see evidence of worship throughout the Bible. So we see evidence for sure, but we don't always have an exact list of what we're supposed to do. We get hints of lists. So we hear things like, I have this scripture from Acts 2, 41 and 42 that I want to read for you. We hear things like this. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, or they're talking about Peter, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. So that's somewhat of a list, right? But it doesn't give us the exact order in which we should do those things, nor does it tell us, you know, what songs to sing and all that kind of stuff. So um, we get hints of what worship is like, but we don't get an actual order of worship that gives us exactly what we're supposed to do. So we know that there were things that the early Christians did together that were intentional. Even from the beginning, 
um, that they're staying in the culture of the synagogue. They want to make sure that they stay around this whole idea of worship as formation, but they know that it's different. And they're going to spend the rest of their time together as Christians figuring out just exactly how different it is. Um, They're going to figure out what it is that their identity is, and then they're going to figure out how to order their worship around it. And I say this because I want to emphasize the fact that worship is a human act. It's based on our own volition. At its core, it is something that humans do. No other creature in all of creation worships, but humans worship. Because it respects the human person as an agent of will. And it creates a place for the human person to focus his or her adoration. Um, as humans, we have a capacity for worship. It's an amazing thing that we could recognize something that is bigger and something that is other than ourself and that we can give it worship. Um, it's a relational and a personal act. And I say that because I think that every human being worships. So when I said we should, we can worship it right now, I'm not talking specifically about Christian worship. There are plenty of people in this world that worship sports. There are plenty of people in this world that worship the internet. There are plenty of people that worship fashion, that worship other images. The idea is that as humans that we were created to worship, we have a capacity to worship something bigger and other than ourselves. And in doing that we bring a relational and a personal aspect of who we are and we in a sense can give it to another thing that we can give part of ourselves away that that is kind of what worship is it gets at what worship is um so it's human and the structure of worship that we've created in this presbyterian church it's just that it's a human creation it's not god It uses the scriptural authority that we have. It's highly informed and thoughtful, and it's and it's heart. It's a very human act, Um, but that's why it's always on the table. That's why we can sit here and talk about what it is and how we do it and why we should do it and what it does for us um, and all of those other sorts of things because it's constantly in process. And as free agents, we are trying to figure out just how it is that we are able to do it. We always bring our will. We always bring our capacity to worship as humans um, and we're always free to ask those questions Um, so every human being worships Um, and I wanted to say just a little bit about that but how God meets us in our act of worship is a totally different story Um, every human being worships but how we choose to worship this God revealed in Jesus Christ that changes everything it changes the way that we worship it changes what we experience in worship and it changes how we're formed from our worship Um, we haven't all showed up here to just worship a sport or to worship a fashion or a piece of fiction i mean there's there's sort of worshiping communities around all of those things right but we've showed up to worship jesus and that changes everything Um, That's the one thing that makes this totally different, and it changes it from just remaining a human act. So on one level, it's just a human act, but because we're worshiping Jesus, now we've moved into something else. We've moved into different territory. Suddenly, in that one fact, we've moved from the whims of our own individual bias 
And we've now come close to the creator and the redeemer God. And now the question of worship becomes much more interesting because then we can start to figure out how it is that God changes us through this act and how it is that God enters into the space that we have set aside for this act. Worship itself, this is kind of going back on what I just said, worship itself will never change us. But God uses that worship in order to change us. So it's always God who's the acting agent of change. Always, always, always. I just want to clarify that because at this point, we're always balancing that fine line between being thoughtful and intentional about what we do, sort of evaluating the human part, and then also paying attention, ignoring what we're, what we're doing all together because really what God is doing is what we really want to pay attention to. So on one level, as humans, we need to evaluate, we need to process, we need to notice what it is that we're doing. But because we're Christians on the other level, we kind of, on some, on some level, we need to be able to ignore that because God enters in despite all of our actions. And then we need to pay attention to what it is that he's doing. So it's sort of like we act and we act and we act and we act and we act. We figure it out, we figure it out, we figure it out, we figure it out. And then there's the point when God enters in and we let go of all of that other stuff because now we've arrived at the place that we want to be. Um, You know, I think we all kind of know about this. It's just like how somebody can sit in church every Sunday and never really get something out of it. Sort of like they're going through all the motions, but they're never really getting something out of it. And then suddenly they go on a hike in the wilderness and they're singing songs of praise and they have that transcendent moment right there. You know, all of the thought, all of the effort that was put into carving that worship service is still really important. And God uses that, but God isn't bound by that. And when we go and we enter into this other context in this other space and we call out to God and God meets us there, um, we recognize that God is free and that worship doesn't bind God, that it's not God's leash and that we can't control what God is doing through our worship. But we still have to pay attention to it because it's what we enter into as a community to be formed and to know who God is and to experience um, what we have precedent of experiencing in the scriptures. So we're always kind of balancing those two realities. Um, my son is learning how to play the viola right now. And uh, he's five. And it's been an interesting journey for me to watch. Um, because one of the things that I've discovered in this process is how we learn. And how each person can learn so differently. Um, and we're actually doing this by the Suzuki method, which means that you don't learn any of the written music, um, but that it's about training the ear and learning to play by ear. It's all about the listening and the experience. Um, but what I've learned by, in going through this process with my son is that the bottom line is that it kind of doesn't matter how you learn It's nice to find the way that works best for you, and it's nice to think about all of the things in the way that your learning style that works best. But the bottom line is that you're never going to learn to play the viola unless you actually play the viola. Um, You need to practice it, and the way that you learn to do it is by doing it. 
There's no other way to learn to play the viola. And I think that that is why worship is important. It's because there's no other way to learn how to do it except by doing it. You can think about it all you want. You can talk about it all you want. You can reflect on it all you want, just like how we're doing right now. But the only thing that actually teaches us how to do it is by doing it. Every week, we practice what it means to be the body of Christ. And every week, we practice what it means to join together corporately as Christians. The way that we learn is by doing it. There's no distinction between the two. My favorite analogy for this is used often with children and the fact that children um, don't often come into the worship, um, the larger worship experience in many different places. An analogy that gets used to kind of get at this is is the swimming analogy. So if you've heard this one, I apologize, but um, it goes like this. So when children are born, um, they're brought to the pool and they get to look at it. And they're told that the pool is a wonderful place and that it's a place where people spend many years of your life looking at this pool. And we hope that one day you will come and join us in the pool and that you will be able to swim. And then as the children get a little bit older, they start to learn about the concept of swimming. And they learn about the different strokes and how it is that you have to move your arm this way for freestyle, but you move both arms for butterfly and how you have to be very careful when you dive in this certain way, not to hit your head. And then when the children get just a little bit older, they start to learn about all the great swimmers of the world. There are many people who have learned how to swim in this world and many people who have done amazing strokes. And we're so glad that you have come and to learn about these wonderful swimmers. And then when they get a little bit older, they get to learn about the attire that you wear when you're swimming. Now, make sure that you wear this thing and you don't want to wear this thing and that you could wear goggles, but you can also wear fins. And if you wear this suit, you might have a little bit more drag. But if you wear this suit, you won't. And then... When they get a little bit older, they get to go back to the pool, but none of them know how to swim. The way that you learn is by doing it. And if you talk about it and teach our, well now, I mean, you guys aren't in control of this, but if we never allow our children to experience it, they'll never know how to swim. You don't create Olympic swimmers by having pictures everywhere of pools. You create Olympic swimmers by allowing people to get into the water and swim. That is how Olympic swimmers happen. And that is how worship happens. So now I want to move into the sacraments. That is why we have sacraments. It's a physical practice that teaches us And that embodies and bears witness to that spiritual reality that we need to learn. The spiritual reality that we need to learn is like the pictures of the pool on the wall. But the sacraments are like getting into the water and actually having the swimming lesson. Um, The sacraments are for us. They're something that we actually do. A way of practicing our identity and of understanding how God is restoring our identity by physically being able to live into that new identity. So now I wanted to um, read the first chapter of Ephesians to take a look at what this identity is. What does the pool look like? 
What are those pictures on the wall of the pool that we are practicing when we jump in the water and, um, and experience the sacraments? So um, Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1 through 14, or verse 1 through 14. And, and this, this section here isn't explicitly about the sacraments. Um, but the reason why I chose it is because what this chapter is about is our identity. And that's what the sacraments are really getting at. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Christ Jesus, according to the good pleasure of his will. And to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. And then I also want to read just a brief section from chapter 2. Um, and you have that up there. Yeah. 13 through 17. Yeah. So this is now still from Ephesians 13 through 17, uh, chapter two. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace To you who are near for through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. 
I'm going to stop there. That is Paul's vision. His breathtaking, uh, I can't think of the word, but broad is the word that I'm thinking of. Something that sweeps far, far sweeping. Thank you. Um, his far sweeping vision of what it means to be a Christian. He's trying to figure out how exactly can he explain this Christian identity. And so he does so by starting with God's decision at the foundation of the world and moves forward into the person of Christ and then moves forward beyond that into the fact that the people that he's writing to when they first made that decision to follow Christ, they are then brought into that history that God has been forming since the foundation of the world, that their lives are hidden with Christ. And so what I want to offer you tonight is three points about the sacraments, and these are not long points, so if you'll just bear with me. The one is that the sacraments proclaim an unshakable identity, that our identity in the sacraments is secure. And I just want you to think about that Ephesians passage, that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. And here we have this mystery that that even before God creates the world, that God chose the world unconditionally in his love. God responds in the fall, but God chose us even before the fall. God does not react in the fall. God responds in the fall. That God chooses even before that in freedom to say yes to the world. So when we come to the Lord's table and when we hear the story of Jesus' death for our sake, It's a choice that happened really before the dawn of time, before the foundation of the world. And when we walk down that aisle to receive the bread and the cup, we are uniting ourselves with the presence of Jesus. And when we eat and drink the cup, we are placing ourselves in the identity of a people who are identified in Christ that our lives are literally in that moment taken up into his life. I remember going to an Orthodox church once. And if you've ever been to an Orthodox church, when they experience communion, it's a very intense part of the service. Um, And what happens is that the whole part of the service is structured so that it crescendos towards communion. There's sort of moves upward, and then communion is this sort of great climax in the service. And so there's the preaching of the word and the prayers, the sung prayers and all that sort of thing. And then um, you get to the place where the, um, the elements are brought out. And they don't look like the elements that we have here because they have them in more of these um, sort of ceramic jars and stuff. Um, but they bring the elements out and everybody in the room knows what that element is. And they all fall down on their knees. And it's quite dramatic to experience it for the first time, especially as a Reformed person coming in, because I had never quite experienced that adoration. Um, But what I loved about it and what it taught me about the sacrament is that we are literally taking Christ into our bodies. And that is still a Reformed thought, because what I'm not saying here is transubstantiation, or I'm not arguing about what exactly happens to the bread and the cup. That's off the table. But even those early Reformers said that we would feed on him in our hearts by faith. 
And that's getting at that same idea that there is this real presence that is available to us through this time and that we access it. And so all of the faithful in that room would fall on their knees because they know that this is the Lord that they worship and that his presence is actually there with them in the room and that they have a chance to partake of that presence and to be hidden in it, to have their lives bound up in it. There's no way once you actually consume that into your body that you can then separate it out. You know, once you've taken a piece of bread into your body or sipped from the cup, you can't then take it out of your body. It's in you. It goes and sustains you and becomes part of the food um, and the liquid that you need in order to survive. And that's exactly the message that this whole idea of communion proclaims, that, that Christ actually comes in us and we can't get him out, that we get to experience his real presence through that. Um, We take his presence into our bodies that we might feed on him in our hearts by faith. And baptism does the same thing. When we see that person covered with water, we recognize that the old life has gone and that the new life in Christ is here. We are literally taken into his life. We are joined with him and our former life is over. And the way that the early Christians practiced baptism really illustrates this point. And I just, I want to tell you a little bit about it because it's so fascinating. So they would go through a three-year catechesis process in which they would learn all of the things that people believed as Christians. And during that time, they were never allowed to partake of communion. Communion was exclusively saved for people who were baptized. So they would come to the service, they would hear the preaching of the word, but they would never actually be able to partake of communion. That went on for three years. And then after three years, on the morning of Easter, they would get up and they would clothe themselves in something akin to a slave outfit. So it would be dressed in rags. And the reason why they did that was because they wanted to identify themselves as people who were slaves to sin. So they dressed in in slave slave clothes. They didn't wear any shoes because that was the mark of a slave. And they would go down towards the water. And when they got to the water, they would take all of their clothes off. You can just imagine what this would be like now. So they would take all of their clothes off and be completely naked. This is one of the reasons why there were women deacons in the early church is because the priests stayed far off when the women were being baptized. So they would take all their clothes off and they would go down into the river or wherever it was. You know, it didn't have to be a river. And that when they came up, their life was new in Christ. They were buried with Christ and raised to walk a new life. And when they came out of the water, they were anointed with oil. And the anointing of oil is very much like a lotion. I mean, we would sort of, the way that they used oil was with the way that we used soap and lotion. So you can think of it as like a healing process. Um, And then they would be robed in white. And then they would be given a cup of milk and honey to sort of mark their entrance into the new community and the fact that they had been, um, that, it, that it was sweet and that there was food for the journey. And then they would come and they would be able to partake of the Lord's Supper for the first time. So this whole idea that baptism really signified for them a new life was actually enacted. And it's still like that for us today, though we might not have the same ritual that the early church practiced. The meaning is still the same. And we still use the water. The elements are still the same. And and it holds on to this identity, this fact that we are marked by Christ, that we are sealed by him, that our identity and our life is hidden in his. Um, 
That is one of the things that the sacraments proclaim. The second thing is that they proclaim that the past and future belong to God. That time is secure. So the first is that our identity is secure. The second is that time is secure. Um, I love that in the Lord's Supper, it proclaims an event that actually happened in time. It's the proclamation of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. It's a real historical event. But not only that, it's a memory, a remembering of the Passover dinner, right? That really happened. So it's sort of two together, remembering the Passover, but also remembering Jesus' last Passover with his disciples. Now, both of those things really happened. So in this event, we look back to what God has done in the past. We're able to do that through that ritual, through that sacrament. But... It's not bound to that. We also look forward to what God will do in the future. The Lord's Supper also anticipates, by its very nature, the feast of God and the kingdom of God. So, on one hand, we're able to look back and to see what God has done through history. But on the other hand, we're able to look forward. And it's through the same table that we're able to do that. So it sort of puts bookends on time. And in proclaiming the death of Jesus in history, it also looks forward to how God will redeem history by his saving death. So it's these bookends to time, the fact that time is secure. And baptism is the same way. It's based on real historical baptisms. I mean, the Jews practiced baptism in the first century. It was a way of purification. The word actually in Greek is just the same word that they used for bath. Um, so it doesn't actually even have a spiritual meaning. It just means bath. Um, but baptism looks back historically to the flood when God washed the world anew in order to start it over through Noah. It looks, it looks back to the crossing of the Red Sea, and it looks back to the waters of creation and the waters of birth. But it also looks forward to the consummation of life in Christ. Um, because when we're baptized as Christians, we are cleansed from sin and we're joined from Christ. So baptism also provides these two bookends to time. The sacraments bind up the past and the future all together so that we can be secure in the fact that God is the God of time. And I love the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, which always claims that God is the potentate of time. Um, and we see that in the sacraments. And then lastly, the sacraments... Give us the strength to enact God's mission. That God's mission is secure in the sacraments. Um, on one hand, yes, the sacraments can seem like a complicated ritual, uh, which bear little meaning in our life today. Sometimes I think that that's how they can be viewed, but that's not what they are. They're literally food for the journey. And what journey? That's really the question. Are they sufficient for the journey that we're on? Well, the journey is a life lived for the world because the journey is Christ's life, right? If we are bound up into him, then we are caught up into Christ's mission. And in each of the sacraments, we became aware all over again of what life was like before we had that as a part of our life. In the Lord's Supper, we pay attention to the fact that it was a saving death. 
And that there's this idea that there's this chasm between God and us, but that God broke through that. In baptism, we're aware of the fact that, that we were cleansed from sin and that God broke through that in order to bring us closer to himself. And in all of those things, it sort of heightens our awareness of what it means to live this life in Christ. And then we come, we become closer um, engaged in God's mission because we want to live more for the sake of the world. It calls us forward into mission, that we would continue the mission of Jesus, that we would love the world in the way that he loved the world, that we would invite people into righteousness the way that he invited people into righteousness. And by experiencing the presence of Christ in the sacraments, we also can't help but experiencing the mission of Christ, that they are one and the same. Um, We are given the food We are given food for the journey to live as people who need to be sustained in order to live out that mission. It's not our mission. It's God's mission. But he chooses to use us as his hands and feet. And so we need him so desperately in order to be able to do this. Um, We need him every step of the way. We need the Lord's Supper as often as we can get it. We can't get enough of it. The early Christians met for it weekly because they knew that they needed that presence of Christ in order to actually be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. They weren't ever called to do it on their own. They were always called to do it by the sustaining presence of the Holy Spirit. And the sacraments became the sign of that actually happening for them so that they could go out into the world and be those hands and feet that they knew that God was calling them to be. Um, In closing, um, I just want to say that we need to identify who we are instead. Who we are instead of a humanity that is estranged by God, what then fills that vacuum of our identity? What is it that it that fills it? And how can worship speak to that identity so that when we walk out of that place on Sunday night or on Sunday morning or whenever, so that when we walk out of a worship service, our identity is restored and we know the answer to that question of who we are instead. We are to be um, formed more into the person of Christ. We are to be joined with him in his life. Hidden in Christ is the word that Paul uses. It's a kinetic experience. It's about our bodies. We need to actually do it. We can't just look at the pool on the sidelines, but we need to jump into the water. We learn by doing it. But we also need to reflect on it, to think of it, to figure out what work, what's working and what's not. God always grants us that freedom to have the liberty to do the reflection and to figure out what's working and what's not. I want to close with a story about identity. Um, When I was in college, I spent a summer in Albania doing a deputation. And it was in 1994, so it was um, just after the communist regime had um, ended in Albania. It was just a few years after that. Um, And it was before, also, there was an insurrection within the country. So it was just kind of in this golden time uh, before things had gotten bad enough for things to really fall into chaos. Um, And while we were there, uh, we took a ferry, my team and I, to Greece, uh, to the island of Corfu. 
um, hard to be on a mission trip, you end up in Corfu. Um, <laughs> and there was a huge group of people lined up for this ferry. There were, it was crowded. There were people pressing in on every side of us. Um, and there was this gate up ahead, and, um, and we just had to wait for that gate to open. Um, and, and it just seemed to be this, it was really kind of a terrifying experience, actually, because um, we couldn't speak the language, and so we didn't know what people were saying. And if you can just imagine, it's very different than being in a place where people line up um, which is if you've ever spent any time in the UK, I mean, people will even line up at a bus stop. Um, so this was like the opposite of people lining up. Um, this was like human mass of people trying to get on this ferry. Um, and when they opened the gate, people were pouring forward. And then I remember, and I, I couldn't see what was happening because there were people all around us, but I remember that suddenly there was a woman screaming, um, not in pain, uh, she wasn't screaming in pain, but she was screaming in desperation. And I had no idea what she was saying because I didn't speak the language. But what I did see were two guards pulling her off the ferry um, and back um, through the gated area. And she was yelling and screaming and trying to get her uh, grip out from beneath the guards. But the guards were holding her tightly and holding her fast. And um, And there were people yelling. Um, and I don't know her story, but um, the crowd was getting riled up. And I remember that in that moment, I had my American passport right in my hand. And I had it there, and I was gripping it desperately because I was really afraid that somebody might grab it or that I could easily lose it. And as I worked my way closer to the place where I could actually get on the ferry, I remember raising my hand up and showing the guards my passport. And at that point... I moved straight on through and, and, and was invited onto the ferry without any further ado. And that happened to each member of my team. But as I got onto the ferry and looked back at the crowds who were not able to make it on, I had this incredible uh, sense of sadness wash over me because I realized what my identity meant. And in this situation, it was merely a civil identity that I'm talking about. So I'm not talking about a spiritual reality here, but it was an experiencing of a civil identity that offered me freedom, that offered me um, refuge through no doing of my own. Just the fact that I had that passport and I was able to walk through that crowd while other people were being held back. And it was unfair. That's true, but that's what happened. Um, and I just remember thinking, this is what it means to be an American. Um, it is a weighty responsibility. I experienced my identity in that moment. And I felt that heavy sense of freedom, that there was a price to pay, but that I didn't pay it. Um, and I hold up that example because when we follow Jesus and when we worship and when we practice the sacraments, we have that opportunity to experience our identity, to claim that passport, to be able to hold it up. And of course, thankfully, 
God does not operate like we are and does not create the same kinds of civil boundaries that we create. And we are bound in that passport, thankfully, not to a country, but to God. To a person who ties us not to his principles, but to his very life. But it shows us who we belong to. It's a way to claim that passport experience that this is who I belong to. And then move it into our everyday lives and actually practice it. Because that experience of identity is real. It's who we are instead. Right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the sacraments. We thank you for the fact that they proclaim a reality that we could not understand unless we've actually experienced them and that they never stop proclaiming who you are. And because they never stop proclaiming who you are, therefore, they always have a message about who we are because we are inextricably connected to you through the person of Jesus Christ not through any doing of our own. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.